You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, it really is hard sometimes after we've eaten a good meal and this time of day to stay awake. And you came to us in the flesh, and you know that. And so I do ask that you will give us special strength to focus and to remain attuned to your word and whatever offering you have for us in this. I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive. For your glory. Amen. Amen. So the great question of our lives isn't so much, do you believe in God? The truth is, the vast majority of people throughout time, throughout history, all over the world, do believe in God. We know even the demons believe in God. The great question of life is, what do you believe about God? Saul believed in a God who may or may not come through. His theology was, there's a God there, but anything that I absolutely want, it's up to me to make happen. And the result of this was a reign which started with clearing the land of witchcraft and ended with Saul slaughtering the priest and their families at Nob, pursuing an innocent man, and eventually calling up a necromancer himself. In contrast, we've been getting to know David, whose core belief was that it's not up to me. What God has said, God will do. And what God wants is good. And this belief in God's goodness strengthened him for his time in the wilderness. He did not try to force Samuel's word over him. It was not his goal to usurp the throne, but to serve the current king. And so the mark, the the greatest mark of our belief in God's goodness and his love for us is our capacity to wait. And and I would say that for most all of us, there is at least some area in your life where you are praying, where you are wanting, waiting, where you are watching, whether it's in your family or something in your profession, there's somewhere that you are waiting. I have a situation with one of my children where I've been praying for a while, and and if you were to ask me from month to month, well, well, how's it going, I would have to say to you, there is not a single change. As far as I can see, God hasn't done anything. There's no hint. There's no indication. There is nothing there. But... That's okay. It is okay because, number one, I believe there's much going on behind the veil. I don't have to know what it is. And the other thing that I know is that God loves my children far more than I do. And that in itself is hard to believe, but this is what I come back to. When we believe that God loves us, that he loves the people that we love, we have the capacity to wait on him. And and Forsyth, this was some of what you were sharing about in a situation where you're being falsely accused. When you trust God, you can wait on him to vindicate you. 
So whereas Saul represents us in our flesh, at our worst, David represents the life that we have as the beloved in Christ. So now we are going to look at our belovedness from a particular angle, which is failure, personal failure, sin. What does it look like to know that we are loved in that place? But first, we're going to see how David comes to that low moment. And we return to the action following Saul's death in, um, at the very end of 1 Samuel. What we see right away as we move then to 2 Samuel is that when David receives word of this death, there's no celebration, there's no ding-dong, the witch is dead. Even though he'd been running for this man for however many years, he leads the nation in mourning. He writes laments for the sake of Saul and for Jonathan. And then he returns and is, he's king over Judah, his own tribe. It's going to be another seven years before all of the tribes of Israel submit to his leadership as king. But at this point, you know, the seven years after Saul's death, things do begin to go very well for David. He's fulfilling the mandate that was given to him to, to drive out the Philistines, to drive out the nations, to settle the land. He takes Jerusalem once and for all. He brings the tabernacle to Jerusalem. And, and so now you have the religious capital and, and the, the seat of administration in one place. And so, you know, you have David's throne, as the footstool of God's throne room. It's all in one place. And it's in this moment that God makes a promise to David that shapes the rest of David's life. It shapes the rest of Israel's future. It shapes our own hope. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is surprisingly hard to say. <laughs> that might just be an after lunch thing. I don't know. But um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, we meet Nathan. And Nathan is the prophet who was given to, to speak at various times to David. And God sends Nathan to David with a method, message. And so let's, let's start with verse 8. The Lord is saying to Nathan, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So unlike Saul, whose anointing was removed, in David's case, not only will the anointing not be removed from him, it will not be removed from his descendants. From this point forth, the house of David is the only legitimate ruling house of Israel. And it is Jesus who sits on David's throne. This was why it was so important that the Messiah be born from the line of David. Now, the implications of what I have just read, I, I could go on forever, and I can't. I've, I've just got to kind of focus on what we're looking at for today. So for our purpose in this lesson, what we need to know is that with this promise right here, David cannot out that promise. David's throne is secured not by his own faithfulness, but by God's faithfulness to him. Now this is unbelievable, and David, even in a sense of unbelief, does believe. What we see in verse 18, then King David went in to the tabernacle, I would suppose, and, and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, following this, we have more chapters recording <clears throat> David's noble acts as king, continued victories, his kindness to Mephibosheth. I wish we could talk about that. All these wonderful things are happening. All is going well. David is no longer in the wilderness running away from the armies of Israel. He's leading the armies of Israel into battle. And, and if this were a story, um, if this were a fairy tale, this is where we say the end, they lived happily ever after. If the Bible were made up, if this were just some propaganda to prove David's legitimacy, the legitimacy of his line, or, or if this were just some legend for Israel's entertainment, this is where it ends. The credibility of this account as real history is supported by what follows. David, this good and faithful king, has feet of clay, and we're told about it. So let's flip now to chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 1, we read, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. 
Now, I would say that the author has very subtly made it clear that David is not where he's supposed to be, but I don't think it's subtle. I think he has said this very clearly, that this hyperbolic, all Israel is at war, but David, David's at home. And what is David doing? Well, David, first he takes a nap up on his air-conditioned rooftop, and then he looks out over other rooftops. He sees a woman bathing, and he decides that he is going to rest his eyes there. Now, this story is not here as a lesson for women about modesty. Bathsheba was bathing where you would bathe in those days. She did not have the bathroom and the shower and the running water like we do. Nathan will describe her not as a seductress, but as an innocent lamb. Furthermore, Her bathing was actually a religious act. This was a cleansing from her period that went beyond the requirements of the law of Moses. It was was an act of devotion that had developed a tradition. And so the character sketch here is of a faithful and godly woman. And when a faithful and godly woman is summoned to go before the king, she goes. She doesn't know why. And and we're not told what the pretext was. But if you get called to the principal's office, you go. If you get, you know, summoned by the governor, you go. And, And we have no idea her feelings on the matter when David makes these sexual advances. One thing we do know is that this was not an even relationship. There was an imbalance of power that David exploited, an abuse of the authority that the Lord had given him, however this unfolded. Now, most of you know, I think, what follows. She becomes pregnant. Her husband is at war. And truthfully, if she were a peasant, this may have been just her bad luck. End of the story. She's on her own to figure it out. But she was the granddaughter of one of David's top advisors. She was a noble woman. This could not be swept under the rug. This is the stuff that coups are made of. National security hung in the balance. Had David remembered in that moment God's covenant with him, he could have dealt with this in a straightforward way. But his faith was not perfect. And we have what for David is an uncharacteristic lapse with far-reaching consequences. He has Uriah called home, tries in every way he knows to get him to sleep with his wife, to pass him off with the father, but Uriah refuses. Now, his abstinence as a soldier on furlough was not required by Mosaic law. Once again, like his wife, this is an act of devotion, of personal piety that goes above and beyond. For Bathsheba and Uriah, it is their very acts of faithfulness that lead to Uriah's death. David murders Uriah, as you probably know, indirectly and takes Bathsheba as his wife. Now, were this to happen in our own world today, David would be canceled. And and whatever you may think about cancel culture, if 
ever there was a just cause, it is here. This is the leading figure at the highest rung of justice in the land. And what we have is an abuse of power, rape, murder, cover-up. And given all that we have seen of David to this point, we have to ask, how did he get here? This is a mind-boggling twist. This is not something that an author would make up. It is too out there, too out of character, too much whiplash. If anybody sent a, a story like this to an editor, the editor would say, nobody, no, you, you've lost them at this. This is not how it, you know, you can have a plot twist, but this one just isn't believable. So what was going on for David? Was it that the time of prosperity was, was a greater time of temptation for him? Or was he simply fatigued from all those years of battle? Was it the fatigue that put him at risk? You know, we really don't know, but I do think it's worth asking for ourselves, when are we at highest risk for temptation. Do you know this about yourself? Is it in the time of crisis or the time of prosperity? Is it when you're tired? I think the moment we think we cannot fall as David fell is when we are at our most dangerous point. Now, I'll tell you, I was very hesitant to be ordained for many reasons. One of those reasons was that among my spiritual mentors in my very early years, there were several who later on left their spouses for someone else. Now, these leaders in my time with them were faithful, devoted to Christ, faithful to the scriptures, I believe absolutely in their sincerity. I can't write them off as hypocrites. And so this left me with a certain reticence about visible ministry and the vulnerabilities that come with that and the cost to God's people when they let them down. Now, it occurs to me now that this is really true for all of us. There is nothing more vulnerable than thinking that you have gotten to some point where you are immune to a certain kind of sin. We have never in this flesh arrived at that point that we are immune to any kind of sin, be it adultery or something else altogether. Now, all of this is a little bit of an aside. What I really want to focus on is how David responds to his um, conviction by Nathan. And so we are going to read a pretty long segment here, 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Now this was a great parable for someone who had been a shepherd. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now by David's own judgment, he deserves to die. And in lieu of that, he calls for a restitution that is fourfold. This fourfold repayment of sheep will be expressed in David's life through the fourfold loss of his sons. What you have from this point through the rest of 2 Samuel into the first part of 1 Kings are the accounts of these deaths. And so this is over David's house for the rest of his living days. We're going to have accounts of incest, rape, betrayals, wars. You know, some people will say, well, these were the natural consequences of the sins of the father. But, but they're not because Nathan has explicitly said that these deaths are restitution for the sake of Uriah. Now, for us... We are under a new covenant. Under the new covenant, we have restitution for those we wrong through the death of Christ. He completes and has completed that justice for us. And so not only do we have forgiveness before God, but the restitution has been fully and completely made. There's no restitution you can make greater than the death of the innocent Jesus. 
At the same time, we, we know also we, we sometimes live out the, the consequences of our foolish actions, cause and effect. This is not the same as, as a pronouncement of judgment. We know also that when we are in sin, there are times that, that God will discipline us to bring us to repent us, to, to repentance. And again, this is not judgment. What is happening in David's life is something that belongs to a different covenant. Under this covenant, David does have a means of forgiveness, a restored relationship with God. But the restitution is going to take place within his own family to make justice for the victims. And so David is in a position that we don't have to face. He's in a test that we don't have to face. Could he believe in God's love for him, even with this word spoken against his house that he will live through for the rest of his life? Could he believe that God was for him and with him even then? Could he hold fast to the promises that God had given to him even then? Now let's pause and, and recall how Saul responded when he was confronted with his sin. What we saw were lies and justifications and um, blaming other people. Um, I do want to bring up something that, that Forsyth brought in the break. This is an important point to make um, for more reasons than your question. There's a section in chapter 15 where it appears um, Saul is making a, a quote-unquote clean confession to Samuel. It has come on the heels of so many lies. Samuel sees right through it. He is placating Samuel, and the evidence that the, the quote-unquote true confession is not a true confession is verified when Saul tears the robe of Samuel right after that, rejecting the word of the prophet. In David's case, as he is confronted with his sin, he makes the very simple statement, I have sinned against the Lord. He says nothing to minimize it. He, um, he, he doesn't talk about his upbringing or his relationship with his mother or father or his midlife crisis or how this or that wife let him down. He says, I have sinned. And we will see that in, a, in a, a fuller way shortly when we look at Psalm 51 in our time of individual reflection. Now, he still prays that this judgment might be overturned. And in his case, he's not demanding restoration. He's just trusting, you know, this God is good and merciful, and I'm going to ask. And so he prays for the life of Bathsheba's child when this child becomes ill. But what does he do when the child actually does die? This was so perplexing to everyone. We're still in chapter 12. Um, let's come now to verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
This washing of his face was perplexing to his servants. You know, this is usually when you're covering yourself with ashes, which, which David had already been doing. What is he doing when he worships? The child has died. He has accepted the word that the Lord has spoken, and he continues to worship and praise God. Even under this hard word, his belief in God's goodness persists. So the tension and division within David's family is going to grow from here. And the very next scene, we see this unfolding with um, his sin magnified among his offspring. David's sexual sin had been somewhat straightforward, lust, adultery, murder. For his son Absalom, it is incest, rape of his virgin sister, after which he cast her away. Chapter 13, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her, Tamar, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Now one way that you could outline these books is by the reference to the robes. And this this tearing of the robe by Tamar is a mark of the devastation that has happened to her. It's also a mark of the devastation that is coming over David's house. In the next chapter, we read how one son murders the other son at a, a royal banquet. And all of this is going to build up to the betrayal of David himself in a very direct way by Absalom. Let's um, let's just read this little bit here, and then we'll go ahead and close for now. Um, Chapter 15, we have a period of time in which Absalom, who has murdered his brother Abnon, is sent away. David finally allows him to return to Jerusalem. A couple more years pass, and then Absalom begins building up forces against his father. In chapter 15, verse 7, here is what happens. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, to David, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. 
But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, who was also Bathsheba's grandfather, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. We're going to pick up there tomorrow. But what I want to do for now is close with the beloved son foreshadowed by David. What can we say about the beloved son when he was himself without sin? Where does he fit in this picture? So, so far we have seen Saul who did not trust God's love enough to admit when he had sinned. We've seen David, who did trust God's love enough to confess his sin and even worship when a hard word was spoken against him. Jesus trusted in the Father's love enough to identify himself as a sinner, even though he never sinned. When he received John's baptism, that was a baptism for sinners. And what Jesus was doing was identifying himself with us, though he had no sin of his own. He trusted God's love enough to bear the full penalty of judgment due to our sin through his suffering, even though in his case, it was truly undeserved. Saul is a contrast to the beloved son. David is a whisper to the beloved son. And of course, Jesus is the beloved son in all fullness with complete trust in the Father's love. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.